This is Veterans Voices, Memories and Stories of Minnesota's World War II Veterans. I'm Kevin Berger. By the numbers, more than 326,000 Minnesotans went to war. They answered the call to serve. And by the time World War II ended, more than 7,800 had given their lives. These servicemen and women were a young, idealistic, determined group. Very few were well-traveled. But off they went, shipping out from their cities, small towns. They left the factory and the farm, and they went to train and take on a cause. And that cause was nothing less than the fight for freedom. You're about to hear from four Minnesota servicemen who really, I would say, came very close to having their names etched on those tombstones that we see with such reverence at Fort Snelling. These four lived the history that we read about, that we watch on the History Channel, that we see in the old newsreels. They lived it, and they survived against some long odds. Three were shot down and became POWs, while the fourth survived to liberate prisoners who were POWs who'd been held in Nazi labor and concentration camps. That was my fifth mission, and I didn't come back. I knew right away that we were going down. And we couldn't see what the ground was like, so we decided it'd be best to bail out, which we did. I got thrown into solitary confinement for 10 days. Now, solitary confinement was the worst experience I've ever had in my life. Lester Schrenk was a young man who had never spent a single night away from the long prairie dairy farm where he'd been raised. Lester Schrenk joined the Army when he was 19. That was in 1942, and within a year, he was stationed in England. He was what they called the ball turret gunner. And the ball turret was this transparent, like a, almost like a little bubble that hung off the plane, and he was squashed in there with with the gun to be to be shooting. I flew my first combat mission on um, late December of forty three. That was to Ludwigshafen, Germany, to bomb a chemical plant. Lester was able to retain this really brutal frankness when he told his story. He talked about how in their training, he and his fellow servicemen, they were all made to understand that their lives had far less value than their cause. He expressed this so matter-of-factly. He accepted it, that what was at stake was bigger than him or any single individual. From the mess hall, you went to the enlisted men's briefing room, and there, of course, they told you what the target would be. They also told you what uh, plane you'd be flying. Uh, due to excessive battle damage, we hardly ever got to fly the same plane uh, on consecutive uh, missions. They also told you that um, uh, you were expendable, and uh, 
that was much more important that you hit the target than you come back alive. I must have heard that uh, dozens of times. Well, that comment from Lester really stopped me in my tracks. I, I, I thought it was really kind of shocking in the context of life today. Think about how we talk to our kids. I think about my own son, and he was 19. Imagine someone telling him, your life is expendable, and, and him accepting that. But that was the ethic at the time and the willingness that these, these teenagers had to step up for the American ideal. That's one of the reasons I think that they've gone on to be known as the greatest generation. But, but back to Lester. It was when he was on his 10th mission over the North Sea that he may have become expendable. His plane came under fire from a German aircraft. There was a last final loud explosion and the uh, wing blew off. Uh, we all bailed out successfully, except the pilot had the misfortune of landing in a lake, uh, breaking through the thin ice. There were uh, Danish people there who tried to rescue him, but the Germans prevented it and left him to drown. And upon bailing out, as I descended, I could already see a group of Germans assembling where I would touch ground. Uh, I had no chance at all of escape. Uh, they surrounded me immediately and grabbed both of my arms. And I spent uh, the next 15 months, or almost 15 months, as a prisoner of war. At this time, the German POW camps were full. So Lester and the other men who were captured were first kind of herded onto these boxcars. He describes, you know, they, they were there for days and they could, couldn't sit down. And then it got worse because after that they were put onto coal ships. Um, there were about 10,000 of us and they put 5,000 of us in the hold of each one of the ships. And um, there, here again we were so crowded that uh, there wasn't any standing room whatsoever. We, we all were suffering from severe dysentery um, they did lower a bucket uh, to relieve ourselves, but there were only one bucket and so many uh, POWs that never did reach around. When the bucket came down again, it was with our drinking water. And then off they went on what he called the death march. Later, he found out that they were forced to walk almost 800 miles in cruel conditions. The winter of 1945 was one of the coldest on record. Uh, we had very, very inadequate clothing. Uh, we a lot of times slept outside in uh, below uh, zero weather. Uh, you hardly ever got anything to eat. Uh, the most you'd get would be the equivalent of uh, one potato. We were covered with uh, lice, fleas, and bed bugs and had severe dysentery uh, that quite a few of the guys died from. Back home in Long Prairie, Lester's parents got that telegram that all military parents just read. They learned that their son had been taken prisoner. And they didn't find out that he was alive for 15 months. That's how long before he was liberated. It was on May 2nd, 1945, by the English Army. At the time uh, I was shot down, I weighed 185 pounds. 
When I was liberated, I weighed less than 100. Now, here's the kicker to that story. After everything, after all that, being shot down, tortured, barely cheating death, he tried to re-enlist, but his low weight disqualified him. All I can say is I'm very glad that I was able to serve my country. In the Second World War, a million and a half U.S. servicemen wound up being stationed on British shores, including quite a few Minnesotans. So when America was drawn into the war in 1941, by that time, the Royal Air Force had already been fighting Hitler. That started in 1939. So they were established attacking German cities from the air, bombing the industries that kind of fueled the Nazi effort. And the U.S. Army Air Forces joined in with them. When I graduated from Delno High School in 1943, in seven days I was in the Army. That's the voice of Walter Groats. And after his basic training, that Minnesotan was shipped to England, and he was assigned to the B-24 Liberator. Uh, they were on their way to bomb a German oil refinery when his plane came under fire. Smoke was already in the airplane. The flame was in the bomb bay. And when you're at 26,000 feet and you're on fire, one thing I learned for sure, that's no time to have a committee meeting. So I opened the hatch, and out I went. I put my parachute on. I must have waited maybe 10 or 20 seconds, and then I pulled my ripcord, and I was in the fetal position, and just like that, it just like he took a big blanket and snapped it. That it, it it blossomed out. And the ride down, I must say, was very nice. Very nice ride. It took me, it was 12 o'clock when I uh, bailed out, and it was 12.30 when I got on the ground. So I had a, about a half hour uh, airplane or a parachute ride. Well, then I says, gee, it looks like the ground is coming up pretty soon, so we get ready for it. And just like that, I hit the ground. Well, anything that was very nice about that experience ended when Walter touched down. He hit a ditch. And I hit it, and I hit it with my left leg, and I fell right into that ditch. And just like that, I could see the people ahead of time were out there. They were on top of me, and uh, two Hitler Youth kids pulled me up and stood me up, and a guy in a green uniform came, and he started beating on me and he, with his rifle. They marched me through the town, and all the people on in the little town on the they were screaming at me. I don't know what they were saying, but then they took me into a big room, and there was a desk with a, a uniformed uh, German officer behind it, and behind him was a big picture of Hitler, about six by six feet. They took my wristwatch. They took my uh, dog tags, and uh, I had a rosary in my pocket. One of them got that, and he held it up and said something in German, and everybody laughed. So he was taken prisoner. At first, they sent him to an interrogation camp, and then he was thrown into solitary confinement for 10 days. And then after that, again, on the move, he was marched to a prison camp known as Stalag Luft Four, and he was in just one room with tough conditions that he shared with 24 other GIs. And the first thing in the morning they do is we get a 
with a, a cup of hot water. And if we had powdered uh, coffee from the parcels or powdered milk, you put that in there. But uh, And then uh, there would come roll call, and they, everybody had to go out and be counted. And if the count wasn't right, you stood there until the count was right. And then come noontime, we get, uh, well, I, I thought it was boiled alfalfa, but I, I tried it to eat it, but I just couldn't stand it. I just couldn't do it. Sometimes you look in there and there's a couple of bugs or worms in there. Why you just say, well, that's just a little more protein, that's all. And then at nighttime, we generally got boiled potatoes, and they would take the uh, corned beef out of it. There's canned corned beef coming into the parcels, and from Argentina it came from. And uh, they would mix that in with the potatoes, and it went pretty good. He was held prisoner in those conditions for a total of 17 months. He left home, he left Delano as a teenager, and he said he returned as a man. Walter went on to work at the Chevrolet garage with his dad and then became postmaster at Delano for most of his career. Well, naturally, when a serviceman was taken prisoner behind enemy lines, it sent a ripple through their home community. It was really especially an ordeal for that entire family still back at home. shot down, um, I remember that this military man came to the door. That is Lois. Lois remembers the day when her family got that official notice with a knock on the door of their house in South St. Paul. They came to tell them about her brother, Claude. Now, the Williams family could have no communication with Claude Williams, but under the terms of the Geneva Convention— in that era, the Red Cross could deliver parcels from home containing some essentials. And getting those packages from home, that became a focus that the whole family on the home front was totally obsessed with thinking about. We found out from the Red Cross what uh, would be the preferred items. And then we were allowed to, to, uh, to send one box a month to him through the Red Cross, and it had to be certain specifications of size, of size, and my mother would plan all month for what she would send in that next box. Lois's brother, Claude Williams, became a POW when the B-17 that he was co-piling was shot down. This happened over Belgium, and Claude wound up in a camp run by the Nazis. It was on the Baltic Sea. And the food and the conditions were pretty bleak. We would always get some boiled barley. That was our mainstay. And we had rutabagas frozen in the wintertime. And I don't know if you've ever eaten a frozen rutabaga, but boy, they're gassy. And we had this uh, bread, big heavy loaves of bread to 
dark bread that were fortified with sawdust. You could see the sawdust in them. And I don't know what they must have weighed, four or five pounds apiece. And in those 11 months that Claude ended up being held prisoner, he sure would have welcomed those packages that were so lovingly being prepared by his family in Minnesota. I don't know how many they sent over, but I only got two of whatever there was. The others were all kept by the German guards. The situation for them wasn't much better than for us. They didn't have any food either because the the Russians and and the Allies uh, had them boxed in, and that made uh, made it that much tougher for us. They weren't going to get starved out when when us eating our monthly rations. So we really learned what to be hungry was. It sounds odd to hear it now, but one of the items that was approved to be in those packages was cigarettes. And they used those cigarettes actually to, to, it was part of what they used to break the boredom. Because in addition to really harsh conditions, there was just endless hours of being stuck within four walls. We slept in our clothes. After that, we just had nothing to do other than play poker with cigarettes as money and uh, read a few books that they had. And I learned how to play bridge there. Forgot since then. Bernie Leader was a Minnesota serviceman who was kind of on the other side of this POW story. Bernie was born in Hanover, Minnesota, and that's a little town north of Minneapolis that was named for the city in Germany where the founders of the town came from. Bernie himself was the grandson of German immigrants and grew up very much in a German-American community. They spoke German at home. They spoke German at church. And all that German came in handy when Bernie was stationed on the front lines in Germany. He arrived as a combat artilleryman at the ripe old age of 20, and he had quite a brutal assignment right from day one. Within the first week or two, one night we lost, killed and wounded 11 out of 33 of us. So that was kind of the the baptism I had going into combat. And it kind of stayed that way all the way through. Bernie talked about how odd it was to himself be German-American and fighting an enemy that so much resembled him. Just think how disorienting that would be. But he did have these language skills, and that meant he was often pulled out of the foxhole and into interrogation by his commanding officers. I spoke German, and our companies, they did not have an official interrogator. In our company, a company was roughly 100 to 120 men. Uh, When we take a prisoner, regardless where I was, normally I would get called to interview quickly the prisoner. We never kept him in the infantry. You just, you just talked to him and sent him back to, back further to the lines of the military police. And then even after the Nazis fell, that language came in handy as Bernie was part of the American effort to liberate those camps. They had these labor camps. There's, there are labor camps and there are concentration camps. 
practically all of the ones that I was involved with that we ran into would be labor camps. So that would be uh, what we call DPs, displaced people. It would be Russians and Polish and French and uh, Hungarian, uh, mostly those other nationalities. Then I would be called, because they didn't speak English, they could understand German. So uh, many times I was involved short-term, not long-term, with dealing with these DPs. He had had to be so tough as a soldier, and now he had to he had to rely on his compassion as he dealt with these displaced persons. Usually they were scared to death, and I don't blame them. I mean, they would be physically shaking or scared or, or be ready to tell you just about anything when it was a prisoner because they were scared of their own lives. And boy, that was tough because I spoke their language. Basically, I was the same nationality as them. We had some some hard experiences sometimes. Bernie Leader's heart for service didn't end when he was discharged from the military. Bernie moved to Crookston after he came back and was the Polk County Highway Engineer and then went on to represent that part of northwestern Minnesota in the legislature for 25 years. Bernie Leader was known as a champion for veterans, initiatives that supported them, including establishing that World War II memorial that's still there on the Capitol grounds. And when he left in 2010, he was the last of the World War II veterans to serve in the legislature. It has been really such a privilege to listen to these stories of our Minnesota greatest generation. And I think we caught them at a time in their life when many of them were finally ready to let down their guard and loosen their tongues and tell their stories. Because as a, as a group, World War II veterans kept quiet about the details of their service once they got back home. Why did so many of them not tell even their, their children, grandchildren, great-grandchildren in some cases. Why? Well, I think when they came back, there were so many of them who had served, and they would say, eh, I'm not so special. We were all over there. We all did stuff. And they would sit around with some of their fellow veterans in some cases, you know, get together at the VFW or the Legion and have a beer and tell their war stories. But a lot of times that was about it. They kept mum, uh, even, again, with their own families. I'm sure sometimes it was just too painful to recall what they had had to go through. And at the time when they came back, a lot of them were just told, forget it. It happened. Get on with it. Don't talk about it. It's over. But I, I recently heard a, somebody who is a, a young man, a, current veteran who's home who talked about something about service and it made me reflect on this. Now this veteran says in the military culture one of the worst things you can do is to take credit or sort of misrepresent your role in service. Uh, there's huge disgust for what they call stolen valor now. People who exaggerate their service or in some cases people who say they were, they're a veteran and they never even served. And uh, this veteran that I talked with thought maybe the GIs of World War II 
didn't want to make too much of what they did because they didn't want to look like they were somehow hogging the credit. It was part of their humility, their integrity. And remember what they told Lester Schrank, you are expendable. You're nothing special in the grand scheme of things. And so these guys who made it home, to talk too much about what they did kind of would would take away the honor of the ones who didn't make it home. And I think that's part of why they've held those stories, why they did. And I'm so grateful for the ones that we were able to talk to who were able to tell what they saw, what they did, what they shared for, for all of us. We first recorded our interviews with these World War II veterans in 2014. Now it's the summer of the year 2020. Technical Sergeant Walter Groats died in 2017 at age 92. Army Air Corps veteran Claude Williams died in 2018 at 96. Sergeant Lester Schrenk is now 96. And Sergeant Bernie Leader is 97 years of age. Veterans Voices is produced by Ampers, diverse radio for Minnesota's communities, and with support from the Minnesota Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund, online at minnesotavets.org.